wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but... Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All our enemies opened their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us, devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord looks from heaven and looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts. 
You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. This is God's holy and precious word. Thanks be to God. Join me now in prayer. Lord God, we come before you humbled, knowing that because of our sins, we are unworthy to come before you. And often we don't even know the full weight of our sins, the guilt and the shame that it can press upon us. We often don't recognize how much we deserve because of our sins. But we thank you, Father, that you sent your son Jesus to take the punishment of wrath for all of our sins upon himself that we might live. And even though you may cause grief in this life, we look forward to the day when Christ returns in glory and grants us everlasting life and you will wipe away every tear from our eyes. In the meantime, we do still feel the weight of sin and suffering and we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would comfort us, encourage us, illuminate our hearts and minds to receive what the text has to say about sin, and about you, and about Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It is no secret that life is full of suffering and sorrow. All of us have felt the weight of that at some point and in some way. There come times in the lives of almost everyone when circumstances are so suffocating, so humiliating, and so filled with sorrow and regret that people may say to themselves, I royally screwed up. Is God still good and loving? Imagine that you make a grave mistake at work that ends up getting you fired and you remain unemployed for a time you might say to yourself, I screwed up. Is God still good and loving to me? Or imagine that you cheat on your spouse and your spouse files for divorce. You may ask yourself, man, I ruined my marriage. Is God still good and loving to me? Or maybe you commit a crime that lands you in jail or prison. Is God still good and loving to me? Some of us have been in situations like this. But let's take that question, is God still good and loving, and apply it to a much larger scale. To a nation who was so disobedient to God that God sent them into exile in a foreign nation. We come to this text in Lamentations and we see the author admitting not only the sins of others in his nation, but also his own sins. And he feels the weight of grief, guilt, and shame. And he feels that so acutely that he feels compelled to cry out to God and to ask 
and try to answer the question, is God still good and loving? But if we look at the passage again, especially the middle of the passage from verses 19 through 39, we see that the author, even while still wrestling with those feelings, he answers that question. And it's not coincidental that what he says in those verses falls in the middle, not just of Lamentations 3, but also of the entire book of Lamentations. It's as if the main point the author wants to get across is right in the middle. And so we look there to find the main point of the book in the chapter. And we try to answer the question in the face of suffering caused by sin. Is God still good and loving to sinners? And the main point is this. And this is the big idea we will explore. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Therefore, we wait for him to deliver us from sin-caused suffering. Let me say that again. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Therefore, we wait for him to deliver us from sin-caused suffering. And we'll explore that in three parts. First, sin-caused suffering and what that means. Second, the Lord is good to those who wait. And third, we wait for him to deliver us. I move to my first point, sin-caused suffering. I should clarify at the outset of this point that not all suffering is caused by our sin directly. There is sin that is caused, I mean, excuse me, there is suffering that is caused by the sins of others for which we are not at fault. And there's also Suffering that is caused by natural disaster, by disease, and so on. We look to other parts of scripture to explore those kinds of suffering. But that's not what Lamentations is talking about. The author of Lamentations wrote Lamentations in view of the exile, which he knew happened because of his own sin and that of his nation. And so lamentation shows us specifically what suffering and the experience of that looks like when God inflicts suffering as a punishment for sin. In the first part of Lamentations 3, verses 1 through 18, they describe what the sufferings of Israel look like on the personal level. And in doing so, the author portrays himself and any other individual, he uses male-specific language, but it can apply to anybody. He shows us what this suffering looks like on the personal level. And he shows us that he is just as complicit in the sins of the nation as anyone else in the nation is. And the poem begins dramatically. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. In other words, I myself have experienced suffering at the hands of the holy and angry God. The God who was once Israel's good shepherd. 
who led Israel out of Egypt and turned his rod against Israel's enemies, now turned his rod against Israel itself and treated Israel as an enemy. And the author then describes the suffering he faces using a variety of images. Darkness without light, intense bodily harm, siege warfare even, And in fact, the term for bitterness, which we see in verse 5, could be translated as poison. He's feeling intense suffering. He describes himself as a prisoner with heavy chains, preventing him from escape. He also describes himself as a spectacle to be seen by all other people that they might mock him. I am the laughingstock of the peoples. And then he describes God. He describes God as a predatory animal who has pounced on his prey and destroyed it. He describes God as an archer who kills his enemies with arrows. He describes God as a soldier who pushes his enemy's face into the ground to eat dirt. What's the point of all these various images? The point is to describe God as an enemy of sin and of the sinner. All the suffering the author has experienced, he recognized that he deserved it. And why? Because he sinned against God and made an enemy out of him. And as a result, God treated him as his own enemy. So terrifying is this experience that even when he cries out to God for help, he claims that God has shut out his prayer, as if God's not even listening. So pervasive is the pain that it consumes his thoughts and his mind, stripping him of any sense of peace he once had, even forgetting what happiness and goodness even are. He is so depressed that he admits with shocking honesty that he has even lost his hope in God. And as if this were not enough, in verses 52 through 54 of the chapter, he describes the foreign nations pursuing him, and then he concludes, I am lost. And that sentence there, I am lost, can be translated as, I have been cut off. And that's covenant language. That is him saying that he faces all this suffering because he has broken the covenant that God made with Israel under Moses. And that he is now facing all the curses that God said would happen for disobedience. And what's more, the author is not alone in this awful experience. According to verses 42 through 47, God also made himself an enemy out of the whole nation, pursuing them and killing them without pity, closing himself off to their prayers, causing panic, bringing destruction, and making them a public spectacle subject to the mockery of foreign nations. As if God does not value them 
as a precious treasure, but instead is treating them as scum and garbage. And there are two things we must glean from this horrific description of sin-caused suffering. The first is we must understand that we too are sinners. We too have not loved God as we should have. We too have not loved our fellow human beings as we should have. And because we have not done that, we too deserve the punishment of God's wrath for all of our sins. Now, we may not face the kind of suffering for sin as is described in Lamentations, at least not in this life. But if you think that means God will just let you off the hook if you're not repentant, think again. The Old Testament prophets, Jesus himself, and other New Testament authors speak of a coming day of the Lord when God will bring all people into judgment for everything they've done. All your wicked deeds will be exposed. And if you have not confessed your sins or repented, you will face everlasting punishment and torment. And to a degree far greater than even what Lamentations 3 is describing. The second thing to glean from this description of sin-caused suffering is that sin often has consequences even in this life. Have any of us ever had an experience like the one this author's describing? Do we feel that? Have we felt that? Have you ever felt that you've lost all hope? You felt like God was treating you as an enemy? Have you ever felt like scum and garbage? Many of us have. I know I have. And as I've thought about an illustration to come up with to describe sin-caused suffering, I'm a bit reluctant to do this, but I feel like I must share a bit of my own story. Not because I want pity, but because I thought it was the best illustration I could come up with. About six and a half years ago, I lost something that I had wanted and prayed for for many years. In four months of my life, I spent in constant depression, oscillating between anger and sadness and sorrow. I said many things to God that I deeply regret. I treated him as if he were my enemy. It was around the same time I was also diagnosed with bipolar 2. And a few years later, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. I'm not really sure which one, but regardless, in that time period, I was feeling depressed. But it wasn't even just that that was the problem. I knew that something deeper was going on. It wouldn't be a stretch to say that I hated God. In that I was trying to hang on to my sin, my idols, that I had wanted for so long. And then, 
after those four months, there came a day when I was so distraught that I wanted to take my own life. So I tried to look for a weapon. I actually couldn't find one. And then, for some reason of God's providence, God decided to bring me out of that and to bring me instead to a trusted mentor of mine at the time. And he saw me to the hospital. And I spent a few hours there, and then after some uh, insurance debacles, I was then taken to a psychiatric institution. And I spent my first night in there in a room with stone walls and a bed right in the center of the room. And only later was I transferred to more comfortable accommodations. That's not the end of my story. Obviously, I'm standing here. I'll return to my story later. But the point I want to make from it from now is this. Sin has consequences. Soul-crushing consequences. And the author of Lamentations knew that. So he's describing an experience of soul-crushing suffering because of sin. If you've never repented and turned to God in faith, if you haven't faced consequences yet for your sin, you will. Maybe not in this life, but certainly in the next when God comes in judgment. And that judgment will be far worse than anything I've described in my story or anything that the author of Lamentations 3 is describing. But my friends, there is good news. There is good news for those who do repent and turn back to God in faith, which leads me to my second point. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. So now we look at verses 19 through 39 again, this middle section of this song of lament. And it is here we also get back to the question we asked before. In the face of suffering for which we are responsible, is God still good and loving? And the author answers that question with an emphatic yes to those who wait for him, that is, put their hope and their trust in him. So despite facing the kind of anguish that left him without hope, the author remembers something that restores his hope. He remembers that God is faithful and merciful to his people. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. In fact, the, not to get too nerdy here, but the Hebrew term for steadfast love, that term steadfast love has such a rich meaning. It can mean either God's loyalty to his covenants or the acts that demonstrate his loyalty. 
and coupled with the idea of mercy. The idea is that though Israel and its citizens were grossly unfaithful, God remains faithful. But we do have to ask the question, to what covenant does God remain faithful exactly? After all, Israel is in exile. And isn't the ultimate curse of the Mosaic Covenant the exile? Doesn't the fact of Israel's exile mean that the Mosaic Covenant has been broken? Well, yes. Earlier we read from Jeremiah 31 in the reading of the Gospel. And in Jeremiah 31 verse 32, the Lord states that Israel had broken the Mosaic Covenant. But God made other covenants, did he not? Did he not also make covenants with Abraham and David? And what's remarkable about both those covenants, the Abrahamic and the Davidic covenant, is that neither of them were dependent upon human obedience. They were dependent on the promise of God. And so in 2 Samuel 7, when God made covenant with David, he promised that he would establish David's throne forever. And even if the offspring of David disobeyed, God might discipline him, but he would not take away his steadfast love, his covenant loyalty. Psalm 89, which in a lot of ways is similar to Lamentations 3 in the suffering it describes, it also makes the same point as 2 Samuel 7. God promised that even if the children of David disobeyed, he would punish them with the rod, but he would not take away his steadfast love. And that's what this Psalm of Lament is recalling. He's recalling these other covenant promises. And so, Lamentations 3, verses 31 through 33, can say, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. One of the reasons why God inflicts suffering on those who sin is not because God is capricious, but because God can and does use that suffering to reveal to us just how awful our sin really is, but then to bring us back to himself and then to show us a greater degree of compassion, love, and mercy than anything we knew before. Let's take it even a step further. We know, after all, that Israel eventually returned from exile. They recovered the law, they read from the law, they recalled God's promises. They even rebuilt the temple that the Babylonians had destroyed. But if you read books like Ezra, Nehemiah, Um, the post-exilic prophets and other Jewish literature that came before the New Testament, you'll see that the glory of post-exilic Israel was nothing in compared to what they had before the exile. 
the covenant of Moses had been broken. And so, a new covenant was required. Which is what Jeremiah 31 prophesied would happen. That a new covenant would be made. And the other thing, too, we should keep in mind is the promises of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants were not intended to really be ultimately fulfilled in national Israel. And now here's the rub. Here's the main point. These promises, they were meant to be fulfilled in one who would be anointed as prophet, priest, and king by the Holy Spirit one who would be perfectly righteous in every way that we fail to be. One who would establish the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied by taking upon himself the rod of God's wrath for each and every one of our sins. As if he was trash and we were treasure. As if he was God's enemy and was being cut off from the covenant. All for our sake. And then after dying, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and he promised to come back, establish his kingdom forever, and bring us into it with him. That was the hope of Lamentations 3. Even if garbed in the language and limited knowledge the author had of that hope in his time. And I must ask, is that your hope? Is that your hope? Going back now to my own story and looking back on it all these years later, You know, I I still feel the effects of it. I really do. I'm still taking antidepressants, on and off. But I now realize just how good God was to me throughout that whole affair. It was precisely my experience in that institution that helped me to realize just how far I had drifted from God and how deeply entrenched I was in sin and idolatry. I had to face the fact that God was inflicting that suffering on me to show me my sin and its consequences, and my desperate need to turn back. After I was submitted into the institution, I spent the rest of my time there recalling and writing down various scripture passages and particularly those that spoke of the promises of God, and particularly those made through Jesus and through the gospel. And it was through that that I regained hope. Hope that though God disciplines for a time, he still loves me and would keep his promise to me to bring me into a kingdom that would never be destroyed. the author of Lamentations 3 was doing something very similar and seeing that though God causes grief, he will have compassion according to his covenant faithfulness and his promise. In the midst of great suffering, 
you lose hope for a time. And in those situations, you have a few options just like I did. You could commit suicide like I wanted to and almost tried. And I say this in all seriousness, do not do that. Do not take that option. If you're in a situation like that right now and you're feeling like you want to, get help. It might hurt, but talk to somebody that you love and care about. And if you have to, call the National Suicide Hotline or something. There is a second option you could take, and that's to abandon the faith entirely. But in doing that, you risk facing God's everlasting wrath. But there is a third option. Remember God's promises, God's faithfulness, and place your hope and trust in Jesus. Jesus, who fulfills God's promises and demonstrates God's faithfulness because he is God in the flesh. And if you do that, you may well still feel pain, suffering, guilt, shame in this life. In fact, depending on your sin, you might even have to face the consequences for that sin for the rest of your life. But... If you turn to Jesus, if you are repenting and believing and trusting in him, you will know God's love and faithfulness. To which you can then respond, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. Now some of us may be wondering, what practically does it look like to wait for him exactly? which leads me to my third point. We wait for God to deliver us. There are two ways that I think this passage shows us what it looks like to wait for God. The first way is to endure sin-caused suffering silently. And the second way, paradoxically, is to call out to God for help. I know those seem contradictory on the surface, so they require careful explanation. The first, enduring sin caused suffering silently. Verses 26 through 30 mention waiting and sitting in silence. This isn't an absolute silence, as if the text is advising us not to say anything at all while we are suffering. And especially if the suffering that you're facing is not caused by your own sin, but either by someone else's sin or by natural causes, by all means, do not be silent. But again, that's not what this text is talking about. It's talking about suffering as a result of our own sin. And so what this text has in mind when it says to endure such suffering silently is to not complain about it. And man, that is so hard to do. It's so hard to do. You know, if we think about it, how often do we tell adults who are complaining 
when they do something wrong, that they're acting like children. How often do we do that? And yet, we all do it all the time, don't we? All the time. I do it all the time. And what's really sad is that even more than we complain to our parents, bosses, spouses, and authorities who can discipline us for our sins, we complain so much more to God. And when we complain like that, we forget the point that verses 37 through 39 try to make. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? The point it's making there is a point about God's sovereignty over all things and his authority as judge. And so we might say something like, hey, uh, God, I know that I suck, but maybe not that much. Maybe I deserve some punishment, some discipline, but not this, anything but that. To which, now I'm not actually speaking for God here when I say this, but I think inspired by what the word says elsewhere, I think God might respond to something like that saying, oh really? I held out the prospect of eternal life to Adam, your ancestor, and he disobeyed me, just as you are disobeying me now. Tell me again what you really deserve. So instead of complaining to God about the suffering he inflicts when we sin, it's better to be quiet and to accept the consequences for sin. Now let's put feet on that. And for some of us, this may be hard to hear. But let's try it. And I'm speaking hypothetically. I'm not pointing to anyone particular, either in this congregation or any other. But hypothetically speaking, if you do something that gets you fired, you accept unemployment for a time. If you cheat and your spouse files for divorce, you accept whatever consequences that may come from that. If you commit a crime, you accept jail, prison, or whatever other legal consequences the state may require of you. And just as I was thinking about the conference that we had uh, this last weekend, if your crime involves a traumatized victim, then you definitely be silent and you let your victim speak and you listen because the victim of such a crime is suffering by no fault of her own but by what you do. And so you listen, all without complaining and with full repentance. All of that 
all those hypothetical circumstances, easier said than done. But it is better to lose your power and privilege in this life than to lose your soul to hell. But in all these circumstances, we can look to Christ and learn from him. And more than that, to be encouraged. What, after all, did Jesus do in his own suffering and death, which he didn't deserve? What did he do? Well, he did exactly what Isaiah 53 prophesied he would do. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. The Lord was pleased to crush Jesus in our place. Jesus, an innocent man, he endured the wrath of God for our sake, all without complaining. And he didn't have to do that, but he did because he loves us and wants us to spend eternity with him and his Father in the new heavens and earth. So we can be encouraged from that and we can learn from it in our own circumstances. We can learn not to complain whenever we face sin's consequences because God uses that to bring us back to himself and to the foot of the cross. So that's the first way, enduring sin caused suffering silently. The second way is to call out to God for help. Again, we're not talking about absolute silence. I mean, after all, this poem, Lamentations 3, it exists, for one. And then we see in it that he cried out to God for help. So let's look at verses 55 through 66 to see what kinds of requests the poet makes. Now, I am going to have to get a little bit technical here, so bear with me. It's unfortunate that our English versions print all of these verses as if the author is speaking of promises that have either already been fulfilled in the past or will be fulfilled in the future. Without going into too much detail, it's better to actually translate them as requests. So, for example, instead of saying, I called upon your name, or you heard my plea, or you have redeemed my life, we should read these as saying instead, I call on your name. Hear my plea and redeem my life. And we can do that for most of these verbs from verse 55 through 66. Does that make sense? Okay? Okay, great. Now that being said, the reason why the author can make these requests is because he has already recalled God's covenant faithfulness, which he's described earlier. There will come a day when these requests will be past tense. And so our author is not absolutely silent, neither does he complain, but he expresses what he truly feels about his suffering with brutal honesty, and he turns back to God in hope, knowing 
that God can and will one day deliver him from his suffering and his sin. And again, we can look to Jesus. Jesus himself, after all, wasn't absolutely silent. He himself cried out to his father on the cross. And quoting Psalm 22, he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was he complaining when he said that? No, he wasn't. But he was doing two things. He was firstly expressing what he truly felt. As if the father was turning his face away from him. As if he was being cut off and made trash. But when he said that, he was also recalling what the rest of that psalm says. And he was trusting that the father would vindicate him, raise him up from death and deliver him. Perhaps Lamentations 3 is doing something similar. And so we can learn to do the same. We can learn to be honest with God about our suffering and make requests of God for deliverance all the while without complaining. In conclusion, let me say this. When we face suffering caused by our own sin, let us recall that though we deserve the far worse suffering of God's wrath for eternity, he won't let us suffer that wrath because Jesus suffered that penalty in our place. He became trash that we might become God's treasure. And so any suffering that we face in this life, that's not God's eternal wrath. At least not for believers. Rather, it's his discipline. It might feel like God is an enemy to us in those situations, but it is his discipline which he is using to humble us and to restore our trust and hope in him. We can, therefore, ask God to deliver us from sin-caused suffering, knowing that one day he will. And until he does, and until he makes our requests past tense, fulfilled, signed, sealed, let us not complain, but instead wait on him, for the Lord is good to those who wait. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. O Father, our Father, great is thy faithfulness. Great are your promises for us in Christ and in the gospel. Great are you, O Lord, who sent us Christ to die for us, to take the punishment we deserved in our place, to declare us righteous in him, and to rise again that we might know that there is life beyond suffering, life beyond death. We are aware that we don't deserve this, and yet you give it to us freely because of the abundance of your steadfast love, of your covenant faithfulness. We pray, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would enable us to endure circumstances humbly, 
to be silent when we know that we're the cause of our own suffering, but also to cry out to you for help in hope and trust that you will. And let us look to Jesus always. Let us look to the foot of the cross and know that your wrath was dealt with then and there for all eternity. And let us look for Christ to return and make all things new and wipe away every tear from our eyes. We pray these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.